crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. So someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside and they wish to speak to you. Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. When I was a kid, we um, lived right across the street from the town park and basketball courts. And so that's basically where we were every day. And uh, I can remember in grade school being out there and playing a game of horse with my junior high sister. And uh, as we were playing, she was cheating. I know that because I was losing. So that's the only way that could have happened is if she was cheating. And she's a stinking cheater anyhow. Don't you, don't you believe otherwise? So we got into a big fight. I mean a big fight. Then it ended with us slapping each other and I don't know, one of us was crying. It might have been me. Um, Either way, we, we, we had that happen, and, and the incident was over, and all of our friends witnessed this and watched everything that went on. Then we decided to uh, play a game. We had enough kids. Finally, we are going to go ahead and play a game of full-court basketball, and uh, as we were playing, this kid that liked her in junior high, now, do you know how kids in junior high show each other that they like them? They hit on them. They pick on each other. Knocked my sister down, and she started to cry again. And he called her a name for crying. And then I was climbing on top of him, wailing as crazy as I could. Now, he was way bigger than me and way stronger than me. And I'm sure I got a few good punches in there, but all I remember is my sister rescuing me in the middle of that uh, <laughs> heroic attempt at bravery. And after we got done, my friend Greg, he goes, what was that? I said, what do you mean? He goes, why did you go after David? I said, because he knocked her down. He goes, yeah, but just a minute ago, you were slapping her. I said, yeah, but she's my sister. I can slap her all I want. Plus, she hits harder. Let's not fool one another. She's my family. And if anyone goes after my family, they're in trouble. That was the rule we'd always grown up with. Years later, as adults, my brother uh, was the black sheep of the family. He was the, the guy who didn't do all of the right things in life. So he created a lot of problems for himself. And his problems sometimes became our problems. And his problems sometimes became my mom's problems. And people would come along over the years and they would think that they would be able to take care of him better than my mom would. And they would say, well, we'll, we'll step in. You don't have to help out anymore. And my mom would say, if, if you want to try, you're more than welcome to. And lo and behold, three to four, sometimes as much as five weeks later, but never more than five, my mom would get a phone call. He's your son again. <laughs> have him back. He's, he's trouble. And even into his, his, his late adulthood, if he had a problem with money or if he had a problem with authorities or whatever, my mom was right there to get everything back on track. And again, her friends would say, at some point he's an adult. You have to let him take care of your, himself. And my mom would always say, oh, it's going to go much worse for me if I let him attempt to take care of himself. But she said he's family. And nothing is more important than family. Family is one of those unique things that God gave to us. Way back with Adam and Eve in the garden, remember? He said, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, start a family. When God wanted to form a nation of people to be called his children, he did it through Abraham and Sarah and their children. God formed a nation of believers through a family. In Exodus 20, God gave lessons on how we are supposed to act inside the family, where he said, children, honor fathers and mothers so that your days may be long in the land. Jesus was born into a family. 
He didn't, Mary didn't give birth and he went off on his own to go live in some commune somewhere to learn all of the different things. He lived the family life. I would imagine if Jesus were walking through town, someone would say, look, there's Joseph's boy Jesus over there. He spent all of his life in the traditional Jewish family. Jesus himself never shirked his responsibilities to family. Even on the cross, in Jesus' greatest hour of need, in his most dire of circumstances, in, in tremendous pain, he takes a moment and he looks down and he makes sure somebody is going to take care of his mother once he passes away. Family is all throughout the Bible, and we can always see time and time again how family has been an important part of God's plan. I think it would be impossible to read the Bible and not understand how important family is to God and even how important family is to Jesus. You and I both know families can be wonderful. They are people who know you like no one else knows you. There's good in that. Sometimes there's not so good in that. They are there when things are going great. Good families are there when things are going bad. There's typically a bond with family that lasts through many of life's events. Families can also be a struggle. And I think they can become a struggle for the believer. And what Jesus is starting to get to in this lesson here is that the more your life transforms, the more your life may begin to put some distance between you and the family. And that can be a real hard thing. Family is definitely a powerful force in our lives. Psychologists tell us that our earliest developments and moments in life are what shapes us for the future, and it's the family that shapes that future. Family teaches how to live with others and how our influences and expectations of all the relationships we're ever going to hold. In my first job at Arthur Anderson, someone said, how do you get along with this person and that person and that person? They are just miserable to get along with. And you don't get along with that guy over there. And I was like, oh, well, that person there, that's my oldest sister, Cindy. And that person there, that's my know-it-all, Aunt Carol. Like, what about that person? I don't have one of those in my family. But I just equated all the people I worked with to some member of a family that I've had over the years. And that helps me get along in life. Family is incredible. Now, what I also want you to know this morning is that in Bible times, the extended family... It meant everything. It not only was a source of one's status in the community, in other words, who you are, whose family you belong to, they wanted to know your name, but it also functioned as your primary economic, religious, educational, and social network. All of your connections to your community came through your family. They came through who your dad was. They came through who your mom's family was. They came through who your grandparents were. All of your connection to the ability to make money oftentimes was tied to the land that your family owned. Your career in life was often dictated by your dad's career in life. The type of person you were going to marry had a lot to do with the type of people that were connected to your extended family. Family tied everything about your life together. And so to say I'm cutting off ties to family is really saying I'm cutting off ties to everything. All of my relationships are done at this moment. That's one of those things in the prodigal son I think we sometimes miss. is we get the idea that he says, I want to take my inheritance. And we get the idea that he's going to go away to a foreign land. And sometimes we even go so far as to say, from the prodigal's perspective, at the moment where he took that inheritance, it was like he was saying his father was dead. Actually take it a step further. It was like he was saying he had no family whatsoever. He was done. It was a huge step that they understood. 
To leave family behind was dangerous, and not only did you leave your, your behind your key social support, you left behind your key social obligation. <coughs> to leave your family wasn't just a shame to you, it was a shame to them. Now, why did I take all the time to go into all that? Because I say, want you to understand this. Jesus' statements at the end of this uh, chapter where he says, who is my mother and my brothers? That's not just provocative. That's not just unexpected, but to some people in that room, that was offensive. I mean, those were big words to say, I'm not considering those people outside my mothers and my brothers right now. I'm considering people inside this room, my mothers and my brothers. It was, it was as big of a statement as you were going to make. And remember, it came on the heels of a bunch of arguments he was having with the Pharisees where they were always trying to catch him in traps, and at one point they called him a demon. And there were probably some in that room who said, remember when they called you a demon just a little while ago? They might have been onto something. Because only a demon would disown his mom and his family. I'm sure there were some that were blown away by that statement. As I said before, throughout the Bible, God tells us family is a priority, but God never says family is the priority. But it became that for people in Jesus' day. Time and time again throughout church history, and, and, and sometimes we fall into it today, we take something great God has given us. We take a great rule, a great command, a great law. We take a great direction. We take a great structure like family, and we take what God created, and we make it more important than the Creator Himself. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that in these moments. In today's world, the bonds of family can cause a similar distortion of priorities. But you say, well, we don't have a family like that. I can choose my career. I'm not tied to the land my mom and dad owned. But see, we sometimes come at it a different way. How many people know the correct time and age to send a kid to uh, preschool or daycare? Anyone know? Because there isn't one. But if you get on the experts, there will be one, right? And what happens if you miss that critical step of preschool and daycare at just the right moment in that child's life? Well, you've ruined them. They're, they're, they're gone. That, that decision at three years old, you blew it. Some of you that have just young babies, you've got to get this together. What, what age, uh, you, Craig, what, what age did you send your, your daughter? Three? Oh, you should have waited till four. That's going to be rough. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you should lead your house better, Father, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. You get me later. <laughs> what about the sports? How important is it that your kid gets to be a Division I player? Some of you are going, I know my kid's not going to be a Division I player. I get that. But then how many, how many times do we treat them like they, they are going to be a Division I player, whether they will or they won't? And I'm not, I'm not judging. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way society is wired today. Your kid must get up and go to school, and when they go to school, there must be an extra, extracurricular activity. And after that extracurricular activity, there has to be the payoff, which is either the recital, the, the concert, the uh, sporting event, or whatever. And then they come up with camps so they can get even better at this thing that they do after school. And then your Saturdays, and eventually your Sundays are taken up with all this whole thing but you get to see all of your friends there because you've dropped all other friends with people who don't have kids because you've got no time for them because you're over here with all the other parents in 40-degree weather watching, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad football, you know, or in a 
gym, lacrosse, yeah, sometimes in a gym that's got no air conditioning and doing all that. Why? Because you have to raise a good member of society. Now, is anything I'm saying bad? No. No. It's wonderful. There's many good people here that are in, in great activities. It's when it gets to the point where it trumps God's will and God's priority in your life that things start to fall apart. So let's take a look at a little more depth in, in Jesus' uh, statements here in, in 12. So as I said, Jesus has been teaching. He's, he's been working with his disciples. Uh, in chapter 12, he's come through and he's been interacting with the Pharisees. Now in Mark's account, there's actually two times Jesus interacts with his family, and I think this is important. The first time happens before what we see in Matthew chapter 12, and it's really where Mary and the brothers start to find out what Jesus has been teaching and that people aren't happy about what Jesus has been teaching. And remember to them, Jesus is not a Messiah. He's not somebody we follow. John chapter 7 tells us at this point they didn't even believe in Jesus. They just, he was their brother. That's who he was. So I would wager they were probably a little worried about him. He's either gone crazy or he's gone too far. Either way, he's probably in physical danger at this point. So they've decided after breakfast, we're going to head on down to wherever he's speaking and we're going to ask to see him. He'll see us. I'm mom. He'll come out. Don't worry about it. And we're going to go see him. While that's going on, Jesus is talking with, with, the, uh, with, the, apostle, or with the Pharisees about um, all kinds of different things. And if I were to sum it up, the Pharisees are simply trying to control Jesus. Jesus, we don't mind that you picked some heads of grain, but you picked them on the Sabbath. No, no, just let's keep it to the, during the week, please. Jesus, I think it's great that you healed this guy's uh, hand, but again, it's on the Sabbath. Can you take a nap like the rest of us? Or go, you know, read your, read your uh, scriptures. But please stop doing work on the Sabbath. And that's when they started coming up with the ideas, well, if Jesus is doing all these things and he's getting to be more powerful, he's doing it in a way that we don't agree with. In other words, Jesus' narrative no longer fits our narrative. And so we need to do something about that. And so they said, well, if it's not from, agrees with us, then it must not be from God. And then if it's not from God, then it must be from a demon. And things started to fall apart from there. So they chastise him for not following their rules. They accuse him of being a demon, and they close it off by saying, we want to see a sign. In other words, Jesus, come to us on our terms. We are some of the smartest people in church. We know what a Savior is supposed to look like. So if you're him, start being that guy and stop being the guy that you are. So Jesus' family arrives at that moment, and I want you to remember something. And this is something that you see played over and over again. Everyone involved in the conversation with Jesus is playing by the rules, except Jesus. They all have a list of rules. They all have a code of contact, a role to play in society. And at the time of Jesus, just like now, you have people who are inside, and you have people who are outside. Being a Jew who faithfully obeys the law, that makes you inside. You get to it from your bloodline and your family, and you get to it because of your commitment to the law. Now, there's this other area called the inner circle, and that's the Pharisees. And that's the people who keep every single letter of the law if you guys remember, I gave that great illustration a few sermons back where I pointed out Carla's necklace being too heavy, and you guys have never let me forget using that as an illustration. But that was a great example of Pharisees who had every inch of the law down to the, just, just the minute detail. 
and they were the inner circle. But every time they encounter Jesus, they find him upending these roles. He keeps hanging out with the outsiders. He keeps taking their side in an argument. He talks to a woman at a well. He goes to a woman who we know was caught in adultery, and he treats her nice. They find him at the local bar talking at people. He is just doing it all wrong, and the more he does of it, the more people are getting their faith to God. Everybody was playing by the rules as they established them. Jesus was the only one not playing by the rules. And I think the same is true for how he was dealing with his family. Because the assumption in it is this. The earthly family ties and responsibilities override all other responsibilities to Jesus. Do you think in a room filled with a crowd of people listening that Mary and, and Jesus' brothers were the only ones trying to get in the room? This is just me, but I kind of picture a velvet rope. Thomas standing out there with a clipboard and sunglasses. And, you know, some big important guy comes up and he says, name? He says, you know, Jonah? Not on the list. Next, you know, name? Uh, King? Nope, not on the list. Name? Mary, his mother. Well, you're not on the list, but, but go right ahead, you know. Jesus' mom and brother's. Because I know you have backstage passes. Because nobody in their right mind would turn away their mom. And Jesus is a good, uprightous guy. And he knows how important family is. So he definitely will not turn you away. <coughs> the assumption is very clear. The mom takes priority. When uh, I, I was uh, looking at uh, some memories on Facebook this morning... And it showed that six years ago, uh, my mom and uh, Hayden and uh, Haley and I all went to the Bears game. And I laugh at that memory because how that came about was my mom said, hey, I'm going to be in Illinois in the fall. I want to go to a Bears game. In my mom's mind, I just go, you know, hey, can I have four Bears tickets? And you go, yes, you know, because they're just that easy to get. Well, actually, my mom's mind, she didn't care. She just told me she wanted to go to a Bears game. So I got it all set up, lined up. We get her down there. We get her seated, and she's sitting watching the game, and she looks. I said, what's going on? She goes, that guy's Polish sausage looks pretty good. Get up. Go over there. I can't find this stinking Polish sausage anywhere in the, in the building. I, nothing. Okay, forget it. It's not going to be that one. It's going to be this one over here. I ordered like three Polish sausages or whatever. It's a hot dog for Hayden. I turn around, and there's a guy holding the exact Polish sausage she wanted. So, okay, where'd you get that? Other side of the stadium, good guy, well, truck, and if you've ever been to Soldier Field, it's small for the NFL, but it's still big, you know. You get all the way over the other side, yeah, I'll take the Polish, bring it all back. My mom says, thank you. Took you a little while. And we laugh about it, because on mom's part, she just assumed I would handle everything for the day, and she was right in her assumption, because that's a relationship we have. And so Jesus, Mary says, I've got to go take care of my son. How I'm going to take care of him is I've got to get in there to see him, to take him home. Maybe I'll, you know, make a nice kugel for dinner or something, you know. And, uh, and so she comes and says her name and okay. And they call out and they say, Jesus, your family is outside. Notice that phrase, outside. Jesus is inside. They're outside. And so I bet the people in the room were like, Jesus' family's outside. I bet this teaching is wrapping up pretty soon because he's going to go see his mom. But he doesn't get up. Instead, he says, family? Outside? No. My family is right here. And in that statement, Jesus once again challenges long 
held traditions about God and his relationship to his people. And we've seen him do this with religious leaders. We've seen him do that with uh, his disciples. And now we're seeing him do that with his own family. As I said, the assumption is clear. Family earthly ties take precedence over all other relationships. How is this different than how the Jewish nation looked at their Messiah? We have Abraham as our father. Therefore, we have a claim on faith and we have a claim on the Messiah. Jesus' conversation with Mary was really just an extension of the conversation he'd been having all along, which is you're not viewing your relationship with God as God being at the top of that relationship. You're viewing it as a bit of a give and take. And I'm telling you, you need a new priority on that. So Jesus asks, who are my mother and my brothers? Some probably took it obvious and said, well, they're, they're the ones outside, Jesus. It's easy, you know. Mary, remember? Others probably thought, misheard and thought, he must have said, where are my mothers and brothers? Well, it's the other door, you know, and they're, they're, they're trying to figure it all out. But I bet there were more than a few who gasped because Jesus is saying there is a closer relationship than the relationships Jesus has on earth. The bonds of relationship to his blood family are important, but they are no longer the priority. Jesus has reprioritized family values to say God is first. And that's the same thing God calls us to. So with this question, Jesus is really saying, who is in the inner circle? Who is my real family? How are, my real, how are they my family? And why are they my family? And as we proceed in the coming weeks through, Jesus, through Matthew, Jesus is going to continue to hammer away at this idea of who is the insider and who is the outsider. Pharisees know they're inside because of their, their bloodline, because of who they are, and because of what they do. What drives them crazy, as I said, is Jesus keeps going to the outsider, and he calls them to repentance, and he invites them in. Jesus is inside. Jesus' mother and brothers are outside. See, in this moment, Mary is trying to use her credentials to say, I take precedence. And Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, you don't. Now, the interesting thing in this is, as shocking as it says, this is not the first time Mary and Jesus have had this discussion. Back when he was 12 years old, and they were traveling with family, and they got a couple days away from, from the city, they started to realize he was gone. So Joseph and, and Mary had to turn around and, and make that trek all the way back, and they scoured the entire city for him. And when they finally got to him, and he was in the temple, and they were being amazed at how well he knew the scriptures and how well he could answer and ask questions that the scribes and the Pharisees were. Mary said, Jesus, why would you do this to your family? Didn't you know how worried we'd be? And Jesus said, didn't you know where you'd find me? Mom and Dad, if you're up here as a priority, and I'm not with you, I must be somewhere that's a higher priority. And the only place that could be is doing the will of my Father in heaven. When you have the wedding feast at Cana, you have, uh, they run out of wine uh, very early on. And so Mary says, Jesus will take care of it. And Jesus said, yes, mother, whatever you ask of me. No, that's not what he said. He said, why do you involve me? This isn't my priority. Yes, I love you and I have a priority to you, but that's not my priority right now. And so you get these glimpses and moments where Jesus is really using the family to say, there is a higher priority out there that goes beyond uh, the commitment that we have to our earthly family and has to shift to our commitment to God's family. You say, well, can I have both? 
Can I have a commitment to making my kid the best athlete he could be or the best scholar they could be or the best musician they could be and have this focus on God? Absolutely. There is no doubt in my mind that yet you can have multiple priorities. But there will be times when those priorities will compete. They will go into conflict. And you would not be the first parent who struggles in those moments when they say all of the games for the team that's going to get your kid to the next level are played during church time. And you say, well, not sure what to do. You would not be the first person to struggle with the idea that I've filled their days so much with sports and everything else that there's not really time left for any time with a youth group or, or other small group or, or any of those other things. Or their calendar is so full, you no longer have time to serve the Lord. You say, well, I'm serving the Lord by making sure he gets to his thing. That's fine. As long as you spend a good time in prayer about it and you both agreed that's where God would have you prioritize his focus right now. But there are times when two very good things will come into conflict with what God would have you do. I call those noble detours. There's nothing wrong with them, except they're not God's priority. Joe and I were talking this morning before the service, and I'm, I'm glad we did, because I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this beyond the, the kid portion. And we started talking about the demands that your earthly family puts on you. And after you become a believer you start to realize that there may be some values inside of your family that may not mesh up with the values of God. My family's values were whenever family members were fighting, a little civil war going on, you couldn't be Switzerland, you had to pick a side. And you had to get on the phone real quick with everybody else on that side because you were all going to talk about the other side. Now, the dust-ups may only last a few weeks. Sometimes they lasted a few months. One lasted a couple years. But there were definite sides, and you had to know which side you were on that thing. And I remember one time after I'd been a believer for a few years, one of those things had started up. And my grandma was losing sleep because it was her, uh, her kids that were fighting and all this was going on. And, and so people were calling me, and I said, honestly, I, I don't want to talk about that because the people that are fighting, I don't have any... I'm not in that relationship. They can work it out. I'll pray for them. If they want to involve me, and I'm sure they don't, they can call me, but I'm not going to talk to you about it. Now, I'm saying a lot more direct to you. I wasn't like some righteous, oh, da -da, you know, I have a higher way of looking at this than you do. No, it really was just saying, I just don't want to be involved in that conversation. And I said, and by the way, in a few weeks, they're going to be fine with this. You guys are still going to be fighting, <laughs> which is always the way when you have those kind of fights. They patch it all up and you're still going at it, you know. So then after weeks and weeks of this going on, I talked to one of the people involved in the first startup of it all. And uh, he was like, oh, no, we've, that was like two nights of problems and we've been fine ever since. And I'm like, well, you know the whole family's still like freaking out about it, don't you? That's the other thing. Don't call the people who are actually at ground zero for this thing. That messes the whole game up, okay? <laughs> don't actually get facts because that just slows the whole process down, you know. And... And he's like, no, I, I, had, I had no idea. I said, yeah. I said, you've got to call your mom, my grandma, because she's freaking out. And so then next time I saw her, she goes, I guess maybe you were right. Getting involved might have been the right, not getting involved might have been the right thing to do. Now, I'd love to tell you that's how they all went after that, but it wasn't. And that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with knowing how to biblically handle an argument, how to biblically handle a relationship problem how to really focus on the way God wants you to deal with others. And it was very different from my family. And so as things like that happen, my family is still my family. I still go to the family reunions. We still go to the weddings. We still go to those things. I still 
uh, chat online uh, with my sisters and stuff. But there is a separation there. Because their commitment and their priority to the family can no longer be my commitment and my priority to the family. It has to be to God first. They're still a priority, but they can't be my first priority. Sometimes people hear Jesus' words today and they immediately think that you're rejecting the family and the family that might have been your entire world. That's not really what Jesus is doing here. And he does that in the next step when he says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus is rejecting the traditional family. He's expanding who can be a part of God's family. Prior to Jesus, you had to come from the right family line, the right bloodline. You had to go to the right church. You had all of these rules. And Jesus says, here are my family, and he points to his disciples. And then he expands that and says, my family is anybody who does the will of my Father in heaven. And I think John, in his gospel, as he opens up uh, the gospel of John, says it well, and he says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, to be inside in Jesus' family means that you've accepted God's free gift and have now reprioritized your life. His priorities are your priorities. His will is your commandment. And sometimes Jesus' priorities give us pause. As I said, they did for Mary. At one point, they did for, for Peter as well. Remember when P, uh, Jesus said, I am, uh, he explains how the Son of Man must suffer and die. And Jesus, uh, Peter said, I'm never going to let that happen to you. Now, what did Jesus say to Peter? Thanks for having my back. No, he didn't say that at all. He said, get behind me, Satan. You see, this moment with Mary and this moment with Peter are very similar. Peter, or Jesus was just a lot more direct with his friend. Get behind me. You are contradicting God's will for my life, and I can't let you do that. God's will must be my priority. I was talking to a friend recently who did a uh, marriage, uh, who, did, who performed a wedding ceremony for a couple that had been together, I think three or five years, long, long, long time in, in today's terms, and really loved one another, cared for another, one another. But her family did not like him at all. There was nothing about him they wanted to see in their family. And so she had a tough decision because she loved him. She wanted to marry him. They both agreed it was God's will for their life to get married, but she knew she was turning her back on her family when she did that. Mom went so far as to show up to the wedding and everybody thought, it, or some people thought it, at the moment it was maybe she's going to relent. Nope, that was her, her mom's sister caught her in the parking lot, threatened her with something, I'm not sure which, and she left again because the sister knew that she was going to be there to try and just sabotage everything going on. That puts uh, the florist messing up the flowers in perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> of what can happen in a wedding. But it's that commitment to God's will that had to surpass the commitment to your own family. And that's where I want to close right now, is that idea on God's will. What does that mean, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother? That's an action statement. That's not a whoever memorizes the Bible. Reading the Bible is incredibly important. That isn't whoever has a good church attendance, so church attendance is important. Those are all things that you should do. It's not 
whoever doesn't complain about the sermon going long, that's very important. Amen. Thank you. But it is that idea of doing the will of God. It's that action. And honestly, that could be a whole other sermon, and you can say amen now because I'm not going to go into a whole other sermon on it. But I want to leave you with three areas that you can look at for that. First, when it comes to doing the will of God, we have the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, simply, I'll just hit the first two, say this. Love God with everything you have. Love God with everything in your heart. This is the foundation if you want to build a house that is a good earthly family, is you have to start with loving God. And the second area that you have to get to is that second commandment, which is also incredibly important, almost as important as the first, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, who is my neighbor? Everybody. Those who have need. My family is my neighbor. When you do something for the least of these, you've done something for Jesus. It's that attitude of action that says, I'm going to step outside of my comfort zone and I'm going to say, God, not my will, but thy will be done. Where do you want me to serve? I'll be honest with you, and I won't bring it up every uh, season when teen night begins, but I'll be right now. There sometimes isn't a whole lot of comfort doing teen night when you're talking to kids that have lived a whole other lifestyle from you. It's fun, and sometimes it's funny, um, but it's challenging. I mean... Carla, how many times in your life have you broken up a fight between two girls? That might have been the first last year of teen night, you know? Carla's like, stop using me in illustrations. But it's wonderful to do God's will, to be privileged to have him ask us to be there. And, and honestly, I, I do next to nothing at all, but except for whenever Aaron says do this, and I say, okay, that's the extent of it. But I love that I'm allowed to be a part of that. It's an action statement, love your neighbor as yourself. The second area you can look to is the Sermon on the Mount because it summarizes very well major aspects of the will of God for followers of Jesus. Have a pure, pure heart. Love those who persecute us. Speak with integrity. Value other people above yourself. Seek God's kingdom before you seek any personal concerns. Live a life devoted to Christ and what it means. And if you do that, you're doing God's will. And so really at the summary of it, it's that when you see the fruit of those things, when you see when you're thinking about what you're going to do that day and your first thought is, how do I serve God that day? That's how you know God is growing you more and more to have a heart like him. Jesus isn't tearing down the family. Jesus is just saying if the family is your number one priority, you're probably going to have a hard time hanging on to that family. But if you make me your number one priority and you make doing the will of my Father who sent me your top priority, then everything that comes afterwards is going to be a lot better off than if you keep going it on your own. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for redirecting where we think we've got it right, where we think we understand what it means to be a child of God. Challenge us to look at our lives this week, our, where our time is spent, and convict us of those areas where we've made it a priority, but we've never once talked to you about it. Father, thank you so much that uh, you were willing to break into boundaries, even, even social boundaries around family, to help all of us to understand that if we don't have you, we have nothing at all. Give us a wonderful week ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.